Some of us just got back yesterday from our annual diocesan convention in Salem. We endured what felt like 90 hours of canonical changes. So coming back from that experience, I've got a soft spot in my heart for the Pharisee in this parable that Jesus tells about contempt and snarkiness and judgmental thoughts about my colleagues and friends. I feel a little bit convicted this morning. I'm just going to be very honest with you. The Pharisee is clearly meant to be the bad guy in this story, right? He's this contemptuous jerk who can't resist the urge to brag to the Almighty about how holy and righteous it is. It's a caricature of Pharisees that has actually done a lot of damage uh, in terms of Jewish-Christian relations. This is a, a stereotype that has given rise to a lot of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. It's also a caricature of Pharisees that has been so successful, unfortunately, that the word Pharisee is now synonymous, at least in some Christian circles, with a kind of self-righteous legalism. The Oxford Dictionary gives two definitions for the word Pharisee. One is a member of an ancient Jewish sect, distinguished by their strict observance to the law. Definition number two is a self-righteous or hypocritical person. This parable and other parables of Jesus like it have served largely to redefine the word Pharisee along the lines that this particular character illustrates. It's pretty unfair to the historical Pharisees, who actually, in their day, had the reputation of being the guys who really walked the talk, right? They were your true believers. They were the, the scrupulously faithful, and would have contrasted rather nicely in Jesus' parable with the tax collectors, right? They had the reputation of being, you know, like mobsters, shysters, Ponzi schemers. A parable that begins, two men went up to the temple to pray, and one of them was the Dalai Lama, and the other one was Bernie Madoff. <laughs> that kind of helps us understand the way this parable might have been heard by Jesus' first listeners, right? When, when it's the monk who turns out to be the jerk and the Ponzi schemer is the one who goes home justified, I mean, you kind of begin to understand why people might have been a little bit offended at this thing. Uh, Jesus did not get out of Jerusalem alive for a reason. After several hundred years of beating up the Pharisee, right, and valorizing the tax collector, it's easy to see where this parable is headed from the first couple lines, right? Who am whom among us is not at least a little bit suspicious of a super-religious guy who waltzes into the temple with his elaborate prayers and his showy piety, right? He fits right into our stereotypes of how religious people sometimes act. Whereas the, stack, the tax collector seems to exemplify exactly the kind of, you know, true, authentic American religion that we each aspire to, right? This deep humility coupled with an innate recoil any time he's tempted to think overly well of himself in the way that the Pharisee does. Everyone who, who, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the parable's tagline. So, you know, make sure you're being sufficiently humble and sufficiently self-effacing, you know, make sure, oh Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner is like tattooed across your forehead so that nobody will mistake you for a self-righteous Pharisee. And Oregonians have turned this particular means of performative humility into an art form, right? I used to have a boss, some of you knew him, Bill Lupfer, who once said to me, you know, Nathan, nothing drives you as crazy as a compliment. Like a lot of us who grew up in this corner of the world, I have this like almost pathological fear of becoming a Pharisee, right? Becoming a guy who toots his own horn and takes refuge in his own success. So, you know, I don't actually require a biblical reminder to be self-effacing and apologetic and, you know, downplay my strengths and focus on my failures. I got schooled in the art of cultivating an inner tax collector from an early age. Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner runs right off my tongue. I don't toot my own horn. I 
try not to get a swelled head, think I'm better than I am, I don't brag, I don't show off, I give a tenth of my income to the church, oh God, I thank you, I am not like that Pharisee, I am not a self-righteous jerk like some people I could mention. I don't know about you, for me, the fear is not so much that I'll become like the Pharisee, right, that I'll get too confident in my own self-righteous. The fear, when I dig a little bit deeper, is that if I'm not careful, other people will start to see me that way. I think that's the Pharisee's real fear, too. I think, I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, is really a way for the Pharisee to say, please don't make me like other people. Please don't let other people look at me the way I look at them. Please don't let other people judge me as harshly and meanly and cruelly and dismissively as I have learned to judge myself. The reason that I have a soft spot in my heart for the Pharisee is that I have a sense of where this inner voice of his is coming from. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Right? It doesn't take a psychologist to tell you the, thing that the, the things that the Pharisee names as objectionable, thieves, rogues, adulterers, tax collectors, those are the very things he probably can't stand in himself. There's a nasty voice in this guy's head telling him that he's a miserable jerk of a man, a thief, a rogue, an adulterer. Nobody likes him. Everybody's polite to his face because he wears the fancy hat. Like the tax collector, the Pharisee knows that he's a sinner. But unlike the tax collector, the Pharisee can't stand it. He sees this tax collector walk in, beat his breast, lament his sins, and the Pharisee is incensed. How dare he? How dare that sinner outperform me in being religious? Because that's like the one thing the Pharisee's got going for him, right? He may be a thief and a rogue and an adulterer. At least he knows how to show up in church and bow his head and look prayerful. It's his one refuge from this inner storm, the swirling voices in his head that tell him he's a worthless, corrupt, miserable excuse for a leader, right? At least, he can assure himself, at least nobody else knows that. And then the tax collector walks in and calls his bluff. Just by being there, just by walking through the door, right? He's on the Pharisee's home turf, daring to invade the Pharisee's neat little world. I mean, if a tax collector can be just as pious as a Pharisee, a Pharisee can be just as corrupt as a tax collector. And this particular Pharisee feels that indictment, I think, land on him with a thud. He's been trying so hard. And then all of a sudden, it's like the jig is up. And everybody knows. So I think this parable is a little bit more than just a, a kind of a glib moral warning, right? Don't be like the Pharisee, be like the tax collector. If we start seeing this parable in this kind of black and white moralistic way, I think we fall into the same trap of self-righteous thinking that the Pharisee is exemplifying, right? We divvy up the world into tax collectors and Pharisees. We lionize one, we demonize the other. We do this with, with like whole cultures of people, right? Whole swaths of people. What the, the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt refers to as our righteous mind at work. Oh God, I thank you that I am not like those people, whoever those people are, whatever they represent for me. And the righteous mind, right, it has served us well as human beings evolutionarily. That's the thing that unites us onto teams. It gives us a sense of group cohesion. It also divides us against other teams. It blinds us from seeing the truth in people who are different from us. So it's a curse as much as it is a blessing. 
But the solution to the, the challenge of the righteous mind, at least as far as Jesus' parable is concerned, is actually not in a kind of scrupulous self-analysis, right? Rigorously exorcising the Pharisee out of the temple every time we're tempted to fall into the way of thinking that he represents. If we try to double down and stop Pharisizing, if that's even a word, we're going to end up feeding the beast. So the way the parable tells it, the Pharisee and the tax collector, right, they're like facing off over this huge divide. On the one hand, you've got the epitome of worldly, secular, loose living. On the other hand, you've got the paragon of pious virtue. But Jesus is not just presenting them as, as contrasts. I think he's presenting them almost like a yin and a yang kind of a thing. They're a linked pair. Two men enter the temple, two men leave it at the end of the day, and somehow that pairing suggests to me that the Pharisee and the tax collector need one another, that they're not actually that different, that there are two men who are struggling mightily with this question of how to be in the world, how people perceive them, what the Almighty has to say about all of this, the tax collector actually could learn a lesson or two from the Pharisee, right? The tax collector is engaged in some pretty shifty behavior, right? He's embedded deep in a corrupt system. It preys on the most vulnerable in his society. It's a system that rewards ruthlessness and pragmatism and an easy ability to look the other way when something offends you. So at some level, right, the tax collector is aware of the corruption that he is involved in, right? He knows his hands are not clean. Presumably that's why he's standing here beating his breast. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the prayer kind of stops there, at least as far as the story tells it, right? He feels bad, but then he walks out into the world and continues his shoddy business practices. I mean, seen from the eyes of the, of the Pharisee, the tax collector is crying crocodile tears here, right? He's working up a show for the confessional booth, saying a couple Hail Marys so that he doesn't have to feel guilty about the fact that he's going to wake up tomorrow and go back to doing exactly what he has been doing. The Pharisee is the scrupulous one in the story, right? He's got systems in place to make sure that his actions and his words line up with one another. If there's, a, there's a tendency towards self-righteousness, but there's also a tendency towards moral integrity, right? He holds himself to a really high standard. That's what keeps him honest. And I think that's why I've got such a soft spot for this guy. I mean, he reminds me of every religiously-minded person I've ever met, which includes a heck of a lot of people who would never darken the door of a church but nevertheless hold themselves to, I mean, pretty high standards when it comes to, like, physical exercise and yoga and eating healthy and giving money and supporting the right causes and, you know, stand, going to protest marches, doing the work, being the change. The, the Pharisee is kind of like the ultimate progressive, right? He's virtual, virtue signaling like crazy, right? He's owning his privilege. He's getting up every day and doing the work of justice and peacemaking. I mean, give this guy a break. He gets one day a month to feel good about himself. And he also exemplifies the danger of that way of being in the world, this kind of scrupulous self-policing. The Pharisee is hard on himself, first of all. And he has learned too well how to turn that hardness on the people around him. So both of these guys find themselves in this place of prayer, in a moment of, of kind of profound honesty. I think they come to the temple, they come before the altar of God, the place that has been set apart by their ancestors for a, a holy encounter with God. For the Pharisee, this is his home turf. So actually, he has to work a little bit harder to get in touch with that place of honesty, to get in touch with the prayer of the heart, 
It's the only prayer the tax collector knows, right? It's this little nugget of spiritual wisdom. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, this is the Jesus prayer, right? This is the, the prayer that faithful are invited to pray over and over and over again until it becomes embodied, until it becomes as easy and automatic as breathing. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. It's not really so much a prayer as it is a kind of tool to get us into silence. The idea is that if I can focus my energy on those simple words, all of the other voices that crowd into my head, critical voices, desiring voices, self-righteous voices, angry, contemptuous voices, that whole choir of self-doubt that I carry around with me, the idea is if I focus on these simple, short words, I learn how to turn down the volume on all that noise, and I give myself a little bit of space to focus on something deeper, a softer, sometimes it's a more faint voice. It doesn't come from swirling up in my head. It comes from deep in my gut. There's a different presence there, and it's not, oh God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. It's something that actually serves to connect me more deeply with other people, other people who are struggling, with a lot of the same stuff that I'm struggling with. All of us flawed, all of us trying, all of us caught up short in these moments of stillness and silence. When we're confronted with how, I mean, how cruel we know how to be to ourselves and to one another, how easily we judge, how contemptuous we can be of our own suffering and the suffering of people we encounter. And in that moment of stillness, I think something breaks open, at least for the tax collector, and I want to believe it happens for the Pharisee too. I want to believe that there's room in this parable for rehabilitation, even for this tortured and anguished soul. The tax collector knows that he's just another Pharisee at heart, right? He's just as capable of self-righteous contempt as his friend is. Neither of them have all this figured out. And so the tax collector prays with as much honesty and integrity as he can muster, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. I, I don't have any answers. I'm not here to make empty promises. I'm not going to promise you that I'm going to turn, turn over a new leaf tomorrow and everything's going to be different. Tomorrow morning, the tax collector probably thinks I'm going to wake up and I'm going to go back out into the world and start collecting my taxes and cheating people out of their incomes. And I'll laugh at the self-righteous Pharisees behind their back and I'll make fun of them with my friends. We will go back at tweeting at one another, arguing with one another, calling each other names and calling each other out on the press. But for one moment, here in God's temple, standing before the throne of the Almighty, for one moment, they're not a tax collector and a Pharisee. For one moment, they're just sinners. That's just a fancy word for human beings. They're beautiful, messed up human beings. Two guys who come from opposite sides of the track who are trying their damnedest to do right by the people they love. Oh God, have mercy on us. Because we mess it up. God, have mercy on us. We are more alike than we think. Oh God, have mercy on us because being tax collectors and Pharisees is hard work and we're doing the best we can. Have mercy on us because we are all sinners. And the thing that we long for more than anything else is not being right. It's love and grace and acceptance and forgiveness. And maybe if we learn how to extend that kind of mercy to one another, 
Maybe that's how we finally learn how to accept it from God.